0: You know, one of the great fears of the suffrage movement, um, one of the great fears of the anti-suffragists were that this voting bloc was going to come in and they were going to vote as a bloc and that um, everything would change because of it, right? That homes would be abandoned, that husbands would be abandoned, that children would be abandoned, that meals wouldn't be on the table, right? That, That they would discover this great freedom and that they would, um, irrevocably change the direction of American politics because there were so many of them and they were all women. So of course they're all going to vote the same, right? And nothing would ever be the same again. And I think it's so fascinating. You see political cartoons from the movement that just play on these fears, right? That once you unleash this block of women, everything is going to change. Um, and it doesn't happen.
1: When most people think about the women's suffrage movement in the United States, they don't often think about Utah. They don't often think about polygamy. Uh, they don't care much about the women there, least of all the Latter-day Saint ones. But Nylan McBain does, and she has written a new book, Pioneering the Vote, The Untold Story of Suffragists in Utah and the West, that goes into great detail about the real pioneering efforts of these women. After all, it was Western states and territories that first gave women the right to vote. Utah was the first territory or state where a woman legally cast a ballot. This is worth remembering, especially this year as we celebrate the centennial of the 19th Amendment, which gave women the right to vote, and the sesquicentennial of that first vote cast in Utah. So sit down, buckle up. Jared Gillins and I are about to have a great time with Nyland McBain. All right. So we are very, very happy to welcome back to the show uh, one of our favorite guests that we had on six years ago now, just about actually, which is amazing to me. Uh, but the, the always kind and thoughtful and eloquent Nylon McBain has been kind enough to join us once again in the studio. Nylon, how are you?
0: I'm doing great. Thanks for having me.
1: We're happy to have you. And of course, Jared, you're here. Of course, who else would be here? Of course, as I as I say in the most third wheel capacity possible, and of course, <laughs> Jared, <not too. laughs> so this uh, this was a great, fascinating book, pioneering the vote: the untold story of suffragists in Utah and the West. Um, before we get to it, I just want to give Nylon a chance to introduce herself to our listeners. Nylon, can you just tell us about yourself and what drew you to this topic?
0: Uh sure yeah I am a transplant to Utah for about 11 years now actually yeah 11 years this month I've been living in Utah and I moved here from New York City where I was actually born and raised so I was uh raised in Manhattan um and then went to San Francisco and Boston and then back to New York so when we moved to Utah 11 years ago, I had never actually lived in a house before. Um, I had always lived in apartments and raised my kids in apartments. And so, you know, it's been a really interesting decade uh, to sort of transition into a, a a Utah champion and a Utah cheerleader because I feel like that's what I am now. And um, I've loved... The role and I love Utah for very different reasons, obviously, than I love the other places I've lived. But um, yeah, so I, I I embraced a role of being an advocate for LDS women uh, before I moved to Utah. So while I was in Boston, actually, so almost 15 years ago now. Um, and I started the Mormon Women Project at Mormon, MormonWomen.com back then. And um, that really took me on some wonderful rides talking about LDS women specifically. Um, that kind of that journey kind of culminated in 2014 when we last spoke, with the publication of Women at Church, magnifying LDS women's local impact. And along the uh, same time as I was doing that women's advocacy work, I was also um, pursuing a career in marketing. I worked in digital marketing in Silicon Valley, and then here again in uh, Utah after we moved here, and. So you know, I've always kind of had an eye towards audience and voice, and how things are perceived, and how to present them in ways that people really feel an emotional connection to them. And so, three years ago, I was kind of at a crossroads in my career, and it was brought to my attention uh, by a, a friend as as she and I were both reading the biography of Emmeline B. Wells by Carol Cornwell Madsen that Utah was the first place a woman voted under an equal suffrage law. And my my friend and I were both um, Utah transplants. She was from California. And we were, we were like, how, you know, how do we not know this? How is this not part of Utah's identity and brand? Um, and we started asking around to Utah natives and they didn't know this either, you know, inside the church or outside the church. And It just dawned on us that this was like a complete goldmine of a story uh, because 2020 was approaching uh, and this year marks the uh, centennial of the 19th Amendment, which was the amendment to the U.S. Constitution that removed gender as a barrier to voting. Uh, But we also recognized as we were learning this history that it was the 150th anniversary of women first voting in Utah and being the first women in the nation to cast a ballot under an equal suffrage law. So at that time, we actually started a nonprofit organization. The timing was right. We were uh, fortunate enough to receive an appropriation from the Utah State Legislature. And it's been a fantastic ride for the past three years. So fortunately, I, you know, I'd been delving into this material for a couple years before I actually sat down and wrote the book. And, you know, leading a nonprofit from a marketing point of view that's really focused on sort of elementary school education and and public art and events is very different than actually sitting down and writing the history. You have to know it in a very much deeper, sort of intimate way if you're gonna really write about it. Um, so it was a it was a good challenge for me to have to have to do that and to to tell the story in a way that you know, really spoke to my marketing heart, but also was um, historically very accurate and um, really presented the facts as they were. Um, And I had so many primary source materials to go off of that that wasn't hard. I mean, the vast majority of the dialogue and um, the speeches in the book are verbatim from what we have from primary sources. So it was a really fun book to write.
1: Yeah, I was going to ask you about that because in reading it, there were so many stretches of pretty lengthy dialogue, and it's quoted. And I was wondering, like, are these actual quotes, or they you are some, some yeah, or some uh, some liberty as a writer to get us there, or not? And then when I finished it, actually, I saw the author's note at the end of the book that actually explained that a little bit. And I said, "Well, there you go, Jeff. Ask, and the answer is already." Yeah, fine.
0: yeah. I mean, I hope you know it's the kind of book where um, it's definitely intended for a mainstream audience. That's what I always have felt like my. Um, strength is and so i wanted to write something that would be really appealing to you know ward book clubs or families or something like that but um but that you know wasn't historical fiction exclusively but also you know had a really rich sort of note section and a really rich reliance on primary sources and so you know it was a bit of an adventure to, to kind of make all of that work but i do hope people spend time in the notes um and in the author's note because i do explain that you know i I took some licenses in kind of joining some um, some of the lectures, so you know there's there's a some of the some of the the lectures, the sermons, the, the long presentations are um, are hybrids of maybe two um, of that person's speeches during the conference, but they are all yeah they're all verbatim and they all took place during the conference.
1: Who uh, I'm just this is really me just curious from a historical standpoint. I mean, who kept. Who wrote down these very verbatim exchanges? Because some of them were ones that happened, in seemingly in private, more or less. Right? I mean, these are just exchanges between Susan B. Anthony and Emmeline Wells, for example, when mm-hmm. they're either in a carriage or on the—I'm um, forgetting about the name of the bus. The Utah, Utah Drag, the, the Utah the drag.
0: drag, Big Red. Um,
1: so, who who wrote these down? Where did these records come from?
0: So, so they're so, they're some so of detailed. Them, yeah, some of them are fabricated by me, like as I say right, in the yeah. author's note, to sort of join scenes. Um, but then a lot of them are, are, are letters. Uh, so for instance, we have, and it, or they're, uh, you know, Emmeline's private journals. So we have, um, extensive records, for instance, of how Emmeline described, um, the woman's exponent and, and how proud she was of the woman's exponent. So for instance, in the scene where they are touring the woman's exponent office, um, I use Emmeline's words that she actually you know wrote and said and sort of bragged about um the woman's exponent, things that she conveyed in her letters because you know the the thing about the suffrage movement that is so important to keep in mind when you're when we're approaching this centennial month, when we're learning about the the sesquicentennial year here in Utah is um that the suffrage movement wasn't about voting exclusively right it It started off as a movement in Seneca Falls in 1848, to um, demand ex- uh, additional rights to education, to employment, to child custody, the Declaration of Sentiments uh, that was originally written by Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Lucretia Mott in 1848 really kind of included voting as an afterthought. And it was a very radical afterthought. They thought, oh, you know, we'll get all this other stuff before we get voting. But it eventually um, became the blunt hammer that the movement sort of settled on after um its origins as the tool that women could use to achieve legislation in those other areas. Right. Um, And so the, the focus became on voting, but, but the result was that a movement that really was the portal for women between the private sphere of the home and the public sphere uh, of, of civic and professional life. And so, you know, it was a 70 plus year movement in which women learned to persuade and they wrote and they communicated with each other and they published newspapers and editorials and they spoke to mixed gender audiences for the first time. And they, you know, used petitions as the only really real po- tool at their disposal at that time. And so, you know, the vast network of magazines and newspapers and letters and journals um really obviously you know lend a, a really great trove for people like me and for for historians, but it also is a, it also signifies like that that was the way women were gaining rights in the nineteenth century was to think and write and present and persuade
2: I love that you brought this up you you one of the things that I had underlined and, and I wanted to wanted to bring up in in this interview was um the the epigraph that you put at the head of chapter fifteen and it's a quote from um, Ellis Meredith Stansbury, and uh, mm-hmm. the part that really stuck out to me is she says the vital part of being enfranchised is not to be found in its political aspects at all, but in teaching us our relationship with life around us. The real significance lies in getting in touch with what the newspaper people call the human interest of daily life, and finding one's own place in the great scheme of the universe. Mm-hmm. And I and I think you do a really good job of of illustrating that in this book that it i mean it is a political movement right and it is about giving women a political voice and letting them run for political office and things like that but it's more beyond that it's about this idea of like a full self actualization for women and I, and i think that's really cool i hadn't thought of the um suffra- suffragist movement in those terms before but but reading in your book you do a good job of making it clear that this is this isn't about politics this is about living life. And so, I mean, I guess I don't have a question here, but it just, I guess. Oh, this is I'm, I'm glad you picked
0: up on that. That's exactly <laughs> Well,
2: right. well done. Yeah. So well done. <laughs> Good. Yes.
0: Good. Good. I'm
1: thinking about the way suffrage rolled out in the country because they, they embraced a sort of state by state approach. I think that was the idea to get enough momentum. Why do you think the West was fertile ground for this as opposed to the East? Was it simply that it was it was newer, that institutions, constitutions even didn't exist yet and it was a chance to start from scratch or was it something else?
0: Yeah, I'm so glad you asked that because that's really uh, at the heart of why I wrote the book. And we're seeing this, you know, my greatest fears are kind of playing out <laughs> this year in that uh, the, the West is getting forgotten in a lot of the national celebrations. The PBS documentary, for instance, the vote that came out a couple of weeks ago, um, you know, exhibits, you know, pre-COVID exhibits that were in Washington, D.C. and such, you know, the, it, this, this these four states that came into the union, Before 1896, as suffrage dates are definitely written off as anomalies and not really treated seriously by historians. In fact, you know the the um, the statement that I have at the very beginning of the the book um, by historian Sandra Myers is that most women's suffrage and feminist historians have almost entirely ignored the West, and that's really like one of the things that I set out to try to do with this book is explain. Why it's been so ignored, and and my thesis is that those four states came into the union as suffrage states for very different and uncomfortable reasons, and that you know when we get to the 20th century ni- movement, the momentum behind the 19th Amendment, we're in the Progressive Era. We have mass media, we have big parades that are covered by wonderful fo- uh, photography, um, you know, and we have we have the um, more militant approaches of Alice Paul that get a lot of media attention. But when you're talking about the Western movement of the 19th century, none of that exists yet. And so it, it doesn't capture our imagination to the same degree as the 20th century movement does. But then you also have to wrestle with really the, the four major um, drivers of suffrage in the West, which were, which were not, oh you know this is the right thing to do and equality is good and women are people too so this we should do this right it wasn't that at all in wyoming for instance the first uh the first territory to grant women the right to vote and then the first state to include it in its constitution you know it was it, it's it's a combination of being a joke being a pr move to try to get women to move to the territory uh being a stick it in the eye of the of the governor who was of a different party than the legislature and then lastly and most importantly it was a result of racism because there were a lot of uh um uh, civil war soldiers who were who had been sort of either assigned to Wyoming territory or who had come out there to make their fortunes both from union and confederate armies who you know are on record as saying, if my white wife can vote, then if a black man can vote, then why can't my white wife? So, you know, we, it's easy to say, oh, it was the wild west and anything went out there at that time. And they had to try all sorts of crazy things that never would go, go in the East. And, and that's, that's absolutely true. But, you know, history is always much more complicated than a glib statement like that. So we really have to look at what it was in those four four territories and ultimately those four states, um, that, that got them to this revolutionary radical place. So of course, you know, the bulk of the book is about Utah's reason for coming in, um, which was the battle around plural marriage. And that's also something of course, that, you know, mainstream Americans don't even know how to begin to touch. <laughs> and then members of the church, of course, feel uncomfortable or un- un- unprepared or unequipped to touch themselves. So, this was an attempt to let the women of of Utah at that time speak with their own voice and in their own words um, and in some cases actually defend plural marriage as they defended it at that time and as it resulted in this fierce battle for decades between Utah and the federal government
2: and that's like super interesting to me and like you know you and you even point out like you said that a lot of these women uh, were very quick to defend that you know the 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 lifestyle of of plural marriage the doctrine of it uh, as taught mm-hmm. by the church um and it's kind of hard you know like you said i think it makes us uncomfortable especially since the church has spent the last 100 years really trying to distance itself from those teachings and from that image and so on the one hand you know we we're looking through this modern lens of you know that everything from well polygamy is over to polygamy was oppressive and abhorrent Uh, But then then we're then we read accounts like this where we like there's an argument to be made that in some ways polygamy was beneficial, you know, that women were able to get into business or go to medical school or, you know, or get Mm -hmm. a legal education. So how do like from a modern perspective, how how do you find how how do you kind of reconcile those views and understand how do you better understand and view the complexity of of polygamy as it was?
0: Yeah, well, one of the great gifts of working with great historians for so many years now is that um, you know I've i I've, I've been privy to this idea that that history is like visiting a foreign land, right? You when you when you go back in history, you have to uh, assume that there's going to be culture shock, and you have to approach it as if we were going to Thailand today and trying to understand the Thai culture, right? Like it really is a, a foreign culture, um, and and I think that. You know, I've at least grown up in the church. You know, uh, uh, sort of overlaying my modern sensibilities onto a an evaluation of plural marriage, um, and and I I hope in the book that I made you know no excuses for how dysfunctional and lonely and horrible it was for some of some of these these women that that were practicing plural marriage, but. I also think that the accurate history is to let these women speak for themselves, being able to speak for themselves and defend plural marriage was the reason um, that, that so many of them initially got behind the suffrage movement. And so I just feel like it's a really it's a, we have a responsibility to them to not judge these women by their marital status. That is a, that's a purely anti-feminist stance to, to silence a woman because you don't like who she's married to. Right. Um, and so I I think the fair thing is to, you know, our sisters in the gospel is really to let them speak for themselves, even as important as it is to our modern sensibilities. Again, you know, and, and that's not to say that they weren't terribly, lonely and dysfunctional. And, I, and, and you know, Emmeline's, Emmeline B. Wells's personal journals make that very clear. But I do think that there was a silver lining that these women really exploited, which was this division of labor that really, you know, d- existed in very few other communities in uh, American, you know, sort of 19th century America, where you had domestic duties that could be taken on by women who perhaps were more interested or more suited to it, whereas a woman like Martha Hughes Cannon or any of the legions of doctors or artists or lawyers who um, existed in Utah at that time could go back east or even farther uh, to pursue uh, their their own intellectual or, or professional interests. So I think the women made the best of it, um, and and again I, I think. You know that's from a social point of view, but I also think that we have to understand from a spiritual point of view. You know, you look at a woman like Emmeline, who was no dummy, right? She 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 was married three times, and two of them were uh, as plural as a plural wife, uh, and one of them even was, uh, you know, she proposed to him, wanting to become his plural wife. And I just had to sit with that for a while. And well, as I got to know Emmeline and really, you know, try to understand her, I think, you know, I came to two conclusions. First of all, socially, a single woman, um, and, and when it came to her third marriage, a single woman, a single mother, uh, you know, had a, had a very precarious place in American society, and specifically, you know, sort of in, in, the, in the Western society at that time, just in terms of, Her financial health and um, ability to provide for herself, but then I also think we have to understand that spiritually, you know, the the patriarchal order within the church at that time really emphasized, of course, this idea of being attached to a patriarchal line, and that was kind of like the ultimate, you know, way of 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 linking people as a community and and returning as a community, a Zion community. Back to God was through this patriarchal line, and so you know when she's attached to Newell K. Whitney, for instance, you know that that is a saving action for her. It takes her out of not just cultural and social poverty, but also spiritual poverty. Um, and so you know again uh, that we just might not sim- you know sort of see ourselves making those same choices, but you know history is a foreign land and and um, and I don't, I didn't, I don't want to, I don't want us to any longer silence these women because they made those choices.
2: Um, I guess Is kind of along the same lines. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah, I, I love the. It's a good, good answer. Um, uh, kind of staying on this idea because, like, you know, I love the idea of the past as a foreign land. You know, it's something you you hear a lot, the, and and I think that's a good way to, always to approach history. But it's also interesting because we. You know, like also another common phrase you hear is that the more things change, the more they stay the same. And there were some really familiar things as well. I mean, there was the foreign aspects of the past. But then I like so for example, when um, in chapter 10, which is where you really dive into the coverage of the Utah's Constitutional Convention and getting into the arguments uh, that were very passionately being made for and against. <laughs> B.H. Um, Roberts is yeah. a
1: hero, peep. No, I'm no, <laughs> yeah, No,
2: I, you know, and let's, yeah, I want to talk so much about B.H. Roberts, but really this should be about the women. Um, yes. But, you know, he, so he uses this, one of the arguments he used, like, just like I was reading it and I was like, this doesn't sound, like a 19th century argument. I hear this today. I mean, in different words, uh, this is from page 110, part of just part of one of the quotes, it says, you are the queens of the domestic kingdom. If you become embroiled in political agitation, the reverence that is paid, you will disappear. It's the old like pedestal argument, right? That, you know, Absolutely. a woman is this untouchable and holy thing. And we really ought to, you know, worship not worship, but, you know, uh, um, recognize yeah. something higher. And, angel, or divine angel, the
0: angel mother, the angel. Right. Yes.
2: And then, and then, so then, it, why, we, why would we sully her with you know, allowing her to be in politics? And I love, you know, you uh, quote um, a response from Emmeline Wells, uh, and it, it, I love that she like tears that that idea down. She says, It's pitiful to see how men opposed to women's suffrage try to make the women believe it is because they worship them so and think them far too good. One would really think to hear these eloquent orators talk that laws were all framed purposely to protect women in their rights and men stood ready to defend them with their lives. And then uh, from a different part of the book where you're quoted the same, from the same thing, she says, Let us hope the practical experience that will come with the ballot may convince even them... Uh, that good may follow and that they and their children receive the benefit of what of what they could not discern in the future progress of the world like ah just this idea that like stop putting me on a pedestal you're impeding progress um and i just um why is this still a thing i guess is my question (laughs) why are we still seeing the old pedestal idea come back and how do we overcome it why why have we not been able to kill this
0: yeah It's it's a it's a great question, and you're absolutely right. I mean, I've had a number of people say that that as as they've read the book that those arguments in particular, like, oh man, it just sounds so modern. I mean, I think you know, women's historians um, probably have lots of different uh, ways of approaching the pendulum swing um, that is 20th century America, but um, my analysis. Uh, which, which is you know amply supported is this idea that uh the pedestalization argument actually ended up being a pro suffrage argument in the twentieth century and an argument that worked, so let me explain so y- there are some other places in 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 the arguments where um I think for instance electa Bullock at the at near the end of the book where they're kind of wrapping up the conference, she does say you know, well, women are said to be so good with a broom. Let us take a broom and clean up politics for you. You know, that, that kind of, so, so, so you see the pedestalization, you see the, we are so good argument work in both camps. So obviously what you quoted, it's BH Roberts saying, you know, the the fact that women are better than men is the reason for them to stay out of politics. But the women themselves in many places, even in this time period, spin it on uh, to be a positive thing. They say, well, because we are such good housekeepers, because we are more moral than you, because we care for children and families more than you, that's a reason to welcome us into the political sphere because we will clean it up, right? Um, And so this pedestalization thread finds its way into the 20th century movement and into the the movement specifically around the 19th Amendment. And it actually becomes a pro-suffrage argument. it's It's a reason in the 1910s that they say, you know let us come in and clean up politics um, and 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 my theory specifically about the trajectory of um, women in Utah, and specifically women in the church that is then that you know that pedestalization attitude grows in mainstream American life through the world wars and especially after the second world War right we have we have the men coming home from war in this sort of retrenchment era throughout the country of women returning home to the hearth, right, um, leaving those jobs behind that they might have taken up during the war, and creating a warm home for their for their returning soldiers again. and And my theory is that um, that at that point, the church is at its apex of of intersection with mainstream American culture. We have the Tabernacle Choir being America's choir. We have the ideal family unit being lauded by mainstream American society, you know, as well as in the church. And so there's this sort of culmination of this, you know, at that point, century long effort to assimilate to mainstream America. And part of that, part of what allows us to be successful in that effort is the pedestalization gender model. And what happens, of course, is that the, you know, mainstream America, then in the 60s and 70s starts merging away from that, but we hang on to it. And that's where we get this, you know, this angel mother image that just simply cannot die, right? That women don't need to be given the priesthood because they're inherently better than men that they, you know, that they are the nurturers and the ones that bring civility to our homes, that kind of, that kind of language is just It's persisted because it it allowed us to be so successful at, you know, that, that sort of boiling and simmering goal that we had as an institution for a hundred years, ever since being cast out of the United States, we had this goal of returning to it triumphant. And, um, that was part of our triumph in the mid century and one that we've been very loath to give up. I will, I will share this one really wonderful story. Um, that doesn't make it in the book because it's outside the time frame, but it it lends even more of an irony to the church's response to the ERA. The the first irony of being, of course, what it's I hope the equal, you
1: picked equal rights amendment. the
0: equal, equal rights America. amendment. What I hope you picked up on in the book, which is that language very similar to the equal rights amendment has been in the Utah state constitution since this, this since this debate in eighteen ninety five. Right, but the 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 sort of um, appendix to that story is that. Uh, um, Senator George Sutherland from Utah was actually the only Utah to ever make it to the Supreme Court bench. And as Justice Sutherland, he tried a number of cases um, in the 1910s around women's working rights. So could women get paid for overtime work? Um, previously, they couldn't. Uh, with Under Justice Sutherland, they, they could. So they could provide better for their families by, by actually getting paid fairly for their working time. Anyway, so in that role, he actually was able to advise Alice Paul, who was the original um, author of the Equal Rights Amendment, on the wording of the Equal Rights Amendment. And one of the sources of inspiration that he used to advise her on how to draft up the amendment was the Utah State Constitution. Wow. And to be clear, the, the language in the Utah State Constitution that they adopted in 1895, which is represented in the book... Was actually kind of standard. It was a little bit of a boilerplate that was circling around in suffrage circles. It's very similar to Wyoming's, for instance. But I still just love that irony that, um, you know, some of the language that, at least as Utah's, and of course, you know, up until the m- middle of the century, the majority of members of the church were living under was actually the same law that. Uh, we mobilized to vehemently against.
2: That's interesting, and I and I yeah, and I can see why, like you said, you left it out because it's outside of the scope of of the time frame. But it, but I, but I still think even that story being left out, that irony to me was present in the book. I, I one of the things that stuck out to me was how many prominent leaders of the church. We're really behind. Yeah, you know, aside from B.H. Roberts, right? But we have like Orson F. Whitney, who's an apostle. I don't know if he was an apostle at that time, vision originally he becomes a a very prominent, well-known apostle. We have Brigham Young giving the nod towards, you know, women's suffrage. Uh Wilfred Woodruff is also it seems to be um mm-hmm. um supportive. Uh, and then you, and then outside of the, you know, zooming out a little bit, you see, you know, uh, like the women's, ex, the women's exponent, you know, Emmeline B. Wells, and all these women are running their own newspaper, and this is just life in Utah, right? And so it is like that. And the word feminism, I don't think existed at that time, but we're seeing what looks to me like a very feminist, in some ways. I mean, aside from polygamy, right? But in some ways, there's a very feminist air about uh, Utah Mormon culture and and now or you get into the mid 20th century and feminism is seen and, and you know as you bring up the ERA it's an enemy to the church it's an enemy to the family and it's so weird to me like what what shifted like what changed to go from a, a place where women felt that they were being empowered to have a place in society to uh, a culture where women were looked down upon if they decided to work outside the home
0: That will be my next book. (laughs) That's, that's, I mean, that's a great question in the past three years that since we've been working on better days, 2020, the first thing everybody has asked is what happened. Right. And, and I think that's, that's inspiring. That question is exactly at the heart of why I think it's important to tell this story because it's really important for people to know that it wasn't always this way. Um, that there is a precedent for a different way of thinking and that that in fact you know we we see in some of the language of um, uh, Orson F Whitney for instance says that he believes the women's movement is the great lever by which the Almighty is lifting up this fallen world so and and we have language from uh, Eliza Snow who actually wasn't always a friend of suffrage interestingly um, but also Sarah Kimball that they they see a direct a correlation between the founding of the Relief Society and the birth of this movement and this sort of awakening for women, uh, and and so you 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 see this this movement as a as a continuation of the restoration. That's really how they perceive it. Um, you have you know we talked about modern you know quotes that sound very contemporary. Um, one of my favorite that that you haven't mentioned yet is Joseph F. Smith, hmm. and Joseph F. Smith later on when he actually becomes prophet doesn't isn't known for his like vastly progressive stances. But at this point um, in 1895, when he's speaking as an apostle to a Relief Society conference, he says um, women may be found who seem to glory in their enthralled condition, who caress and fondle the very chains and manacles, which fetter and enslave them. Mm Um, and he talks about the wage gap a little bit later on in that sermon, and he says, "Why should should a male citizen have a voice in civil government, um, and one and enjoy civil rights, and the other be denied them?" And she, the, he talks about taxation without representation. He talks about why is it okay? Um, do women eat bread as well as men? Shall men be favored as breadwinners, and women be handicapped in their effort to win bread? You know, this is <laughs> it's it's just so fascinating to me to hear this sort of sanctioned voice of the Lord, you know, talk about the wage gap and how it's not appropriate to hold a woman back from being able to earn, be the breadwinner for her family. Uh, So, so I think the point of all of this is to kind of startle us out of our expectations and to encourage us to think a little bit deeper about why, why we claim what we do about gender roles today in the church and to, to really shake us out of this belief that, that, the church has always done things in a certain way. Um, you know, I think as more, as we do more, um, exploration of, um, gender theology in the, in the church, I'm thinking of, uh, Taylor Petrie's new book specifically, you know, one of his points is that the doctrine itself has, has changed considerably over the course of the restoration. And so this idea of family structure has also changed. Um, and, and, you know, that's that's part of the point of the book is to kind of shock us into that realization
1: i i and in reading this like i this whole discussion i think about why we don't see it like this necessarily in the church today not exactly anyway i mean we, you know we think about the family proclamation we think about all these things but i even look back that during this push for suffrage i mean the relief society was a vehicle for this and Like, can we? I don't know if it's just because of the Johnson Amendment, but could we imagine something like that happening now? I mean, unless we deem it a moral issue, but I haven't seen many of church leadership speaking out on similar moral issues. And disenfranchisement is still an issue in our country, in in many ways. We could get into whole arguments about voter ID laws or all sorts of things like that. Um, That's what really stuck out to me is how much more deeply. And meshed with church apparatus, these sisters were uh, as a means to their end, because I just can't imagine seeing it in that same capacity today unless it was something similar to, like, you know, the the whole prop eight thing, you know, back well, that's, twelve years that, ago
0: exactly. and And that's my response to that as much, you know, I, in the process of learning this history, I've had to step back and say, as much as I love just chewing on what these women did during the suffrage movement, how they changed the names of their relief societies to be, you know, the Beaver County Relief Society became the Beaver County Suffrage Association. You know, as much as we love that, as much as we love this example of the church sort of mobilizing its whole community for something to, you know, to, to be in the right. Mm-hmm. Um, or would we be comfortable with that same structural mobilization today? And I think you're right that the closest parallel probably is prop eight and no, I'm not comfortable with that. Um, and so, so I think we have to wrestle with that too, you know, that at the, at the time the church was a military and political, uh, structure for these people, as well as a theological and social one. And so the, the, that, that ability to mobilize for their defense and for their survival is not something that really is appropriate for a 21st century church that is international, that has vastly less involvement in people's um, temporal affairs, you know, what jobs they take, where they live, that kind of thing, who, who they're protected by. You know, those are not considerations that the church, those are not responsibilities the church takes on anymore. Uh and so I just I think it's a really interesting question like what kind of movement would we be comfortable having the church and specifically the relief society get behind today I've actually thought a lot about this um because I would love to see the relief society have a distinct temporal purpose that women from around the world could mobilize around I think that would be really really healthy uh, for the Relief Society as an institution, and also for women as members of the church. But you know, I've come to the, I've come to ideas such as you know global literacy, right, or sex trafficking, or um, things like that. Uh, but just things that are outside of a particular um, national political bubble, right? Um, and I would love to see I would love to see the Relief Society mobilize on on a front like that.
1: Yeah, that'd be interesting. Excuse me. So polygamy. Polygamy looms large. We talked about it a few minutes ago, but obviously it was a major reason why Utah couldn't attain statehood for so long. And the Latter-day Saints at the time saw statehood as a crucial acquisition for them because, I mean, they'd lived in other states. They'd been in states for basically the entirety of the church but those states inevitably got tired of them in one form or another. Whereas if we controlled a state-level government in Utah that did not have a federally appointed territorial governor, the church could be safer. It was an existential issue, I'd say, for the church at the time. Um, But polygamy, of course, loomed large. And things I did not know until reading this book, for example, were like that the New York Times, for example, sort of Mm -hmm. posited that uh, giving women the right to vote, I, I might say this incorrectly, so correct me if I do, but um, that essentially giving women the right to vote in Utah would force Utah to decide its own fate on polygamy. And there were many who felt that these, these polygamous women, once given the right to vote, would then vote to take polygamy out of Utah's constitution and make it illegal, which of course did not actually happen. There are plenty of women who supported it did not. the status quo. But I thought that was such an interesting perspective, like an interesting reason to say we should let women vote, you know, not just for equality's sake, like you've mentioned before, but because they might be the drivers to, to stamp out polygamy in Utah. And it just did not happen that way, which is so interesting to me.
0: Yeah, it didn't. And, um, and so the the history gets very very complicated there for a couple of decades. This is you probably picked up on, but yeah, you're right. I mean, the, the polygamy was the driver for trying to figure out what to do with Utah. Right? It was a twin relic of barbarism along with slavery. It was um, a huge dividing factor uh when the National Women's Suffrage Association separated from the American Women's Suffrage Association, they mostly divided over their attitudes about the Fifteenth Amendment and the Reconstruction Amendments um, and how they and and you know how black men were enfranchised but white women were not. Um, and unfortunately, that issue was the main driver to separate these two national groups. But the other main driver was what to do with the Utah women, what to do with the, the polygamist women. Um, and so, you know, we can't, I don't think anybody that understands sort of church history in the 19th century can really overstate the importance of the Mormon question in American politics in the 19th century, right? It was a major point of discussion. And so there was this idea that if you if you enfranchise Utah women, they will vote out Polygamous leaders; they will vote in leaders who will do away with polygamy. They will, they will even have it on the ballot, Mm -hmm. and we and and that doesn't happen. Um, So, so Utah first has this uh, its first municipal election on February fourteenth, eighteen seventy, which is where the first female vote took place. But then they have a state; uh, they have a territory-wide election um on August first, 1870. So actually 150 years ago this week, um, just the other day. And and we have record of that election somehow being a decider of polygamy. And it's not clear whether whether there were polygamists on the ballot that had the potential for being voted out. I I think that's probably the best case scenario, but we could because we can't I mean they weren't voting on like church doctrine, right? So And so it was recorded by the newspapers at that time on that August 1st election that the thousands of women that went to vote in Salt Lake that day did not vote against polygamy that is recorded. Um, And so, and, and and we also have um, going back a little bit, the indignation meeting of January, 1870, where the federal government started rumblings of um, criminalizing uh, plural, plural marriage and thus, you know, basically disenfranchising franchising all of, of Utah territory citizens. And the response by the women of Utah is to host what is called this indignation meeting. And it was 5,000 women gathering in the old tabernacle on, South, on Temple Square with only male reporters present. And basically, defending polygamy and writing resolutions as to why they should be allowed to practice their way of life. And at the time, according to the 1870 census, that was 15% of the territory's population that gathered in these indignation meetings. And so again, I think, you know, and I include, I don't spend a lot of time on that particular meeting in the book, but I think you have to look at that and see what they're trying to do at that meeting there. It's very spiritually driven. They're trying to hold up the patriarchal or they're trying to support their men. Right. Um, but I didn't, I don't see a lot of coercion in it. And I think that's the big question about this, right? Did the men grant their women the right to vote because they just knew that they were going to vote the way they wanted them to, and they were going to thus du- double their electorate, right? Um, did they know that the women were going to uphold polygamy? Did they feel like they could coerce the women to uphold polygamy? And, and, and I, you know, we don't have records of how husbands and wives voted to really know if they did vote, vote, you know, against each other on separate platforms. But we do have the example of um you know lots of journals where women took this this responsibility and this privilege very seriously and we have journals where they would say I don't I'm not telling my husband how I vote, right? Um we have we have Emmeline who you know really voted her conscience uh, according to her journals and then we have the example of somebody like Martha Hughes Cannon who not only votes against the, same, the platform that her husband represents, but literally runs against him in an elected race <laughs> and beats him on the opposite party ticket. So, so it's, a, it's a really interesting question and one that I think we'll never know the answer to of like, you know, were these women coerced? And from everything I can tell, there is a far lower rate of coercion than I think we might kind of assume going into it from a modern sensibility.
2: So in your response just then, one of the things that you started you kind of hinted at was um once women were granted this power to vote and to voice their opinions politically, there actually ended up, you know, being much more divisiveness than maybe they had anticipated. And like you said, you know, so obviously then that part of that is that we couldn't predict, you know, if they were gonna vote how their husband voted, et cetera. But you point out in the book um that even among the suffragist women, like a lot of them end up lining themselves with uh, the Democratic Party once they become a state and the two-party system is introduced. But then Emmeline and and at least one other chooses the Republican Party. And this was really interesting mm-hmm. to me that there wasn't more unity. And and this is um not something that I'm extremely well versed in, in history. But by according to my understanding at that time the Republican Party was the more progressive of the two. So I'm curious, yes. you know, why so many of these progressive pro-suffrage women were aligning themselves with the more conservative party rather than the Republican?
0: You know, I, I don't. I, I, that's a really great question. I don't, I'm not f- as familiar with the party platforms of 1896 as I, as I probably should be. Come on, um, why are you even? But- <laughs> I don't know, it's like, <laughs> you're at a party, you need to throw stuff out there. That's what I really need to call in the, the, the big, big gun historians. Right. Um, but I will say this, I will say that you know, one of the great fears of the suffrage movement, um, one of the great fears of the anti-suffragists were that this voting bloc was going to come in and they were going to vote as a bloc and that um, everything would change because of it, right? That homes would be abandoned, that husbands would be abandoned, that children would be abandoned, that meals wouldn't be on the table, right? That, That they would discover this great, freedom and that they would um, irrevocably change the direction of American politics because there were so many of them and they were all women. So of course they're all going to vote the same, right? And nothing would ever be the same again. And I think it's so fascinating. You see political cartoons from the movement that just play on these fears, right? That once you unleash this block of women, everything is going to change. um, And it doesn't happen, right? So women are just as diverse and just as um, varied in their attitudes of what the right thing to do is, as men. And the reason I think that that's so important to keep in mind is that it's kind of that, that 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 a variation of that fear creeps up again and again in twentieth century history. Of course, the ERA is the is the best example of that. You have this fear that if women are unleashed through this legislation, nothing will ever be the same again. Right we'll have we'll have women in the military we'll have mixed gender bathrooms women will abandon their homes and just go to the workplace right and and none of these fears take into account the variability of women and the the, the personal experience and the individual um philosophies and persuasions of of women which are just as varied as men and and so we haven't seen voting, women's voting save the nation we haven't seen women's voting Prioritize children above else. We haven't seen women's voting clean up politics, right? And similarly, like so much of the fears of the ERA have played out in separate, smaller legislation, right? We do have women in the military. We do have mixed gender bathrooms, right? But the world goes on, and and I just I think that that's one of the great lessons for me of the suffrage movement is that you can never predict. You I I just don't think these 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 legislation just doesn't have that power to change our culture overnight the way fear mongers would have you believe.
2: Um, I want to ask a completely different question and maybe, um, you know, it's not as much of a uh, diving into the text. I'm really curious about the uh, image on the cover of the book and um, just to describe it really quickly for the listeners. If you haven't, you can Google the the, the book and look at the, uh, the image, but obvious, it looks like an old political cartoon. You have like a, the United States and and several of the Western states are you know, are in white. And and then everything, all the other like eastern states east of like Kansas is just this kind of black mire with people half submerged, looks like they're struggling to get out of the mire and standing over the western states is like late, the, the feminine image of Columbia with her torch and her her garment says votes for women streaming off of it. Like she's like beckoning. I don't know. Can you tell us about like where this image came from and is there a little more context for it? Cause I just thought it was super interesting, but it didn't, I didn't see any explanation for it in the book.
0: Yeah. So it's a political cartoon from 1915 um, from a magazine called puck and it's called the awakening. And um, I just, I, I, I love this cartoon because it really reflects the attitude of the nation around this, around the Western emancipation of women at that time. Um, After, after Utah, uh, sorry, after Idaho joins the nation as a suffrage state in 1896, there are four states that have women's suffrage in their constitutions, Wyoming, Utah, Wyoming, Colorado, Utah, and Idaho. And then you have something called the doldrums period, which is this 14 year period before any other state or territory comes into the union. Um, and that's in 1910. But after 1910, from between 1910 to 1915, you have this hurried pace of Western states joining. And that's sort of the states that you see in the political cartoon that are emancipated, right? Like the Colombia's walking over um triumphantly. Um and so what's interesting is that in 1915, so you're still you're only five years away from the national amendment, the the eastern and sort of Midwestern states are still um in the dark, essentially, right? They're, they're, they have not yet embraced this um, emancipating uh, movement. And, um, and so the, the, they look at the Western states as these places of liberty and of, of freedom for women. And interestingly, the, the, the first 30 states to join the union uh, are the last 30 states to enfranchise their women. And so this kind of gets back to the idea of like, well, what's different about the West? And, you know, we've talked about how the, the, these first four States have, their very specific and kind of sometimes uncomfortable reasons, but I do think that we can generalize a little bit about the, the East and say, you know, that they were much more traditional. They were, they, they did have existing state constitutions um, that were harder to change. Uh, They, they just did, they were a little bit more set in their ways. And of course in the South, you have the race issue that looms large and really is um, a barrier uh, for that, for that uh, region. So yeah, it's a, I just, it's my feet, one of my favorite political cartoons that I've come across from that time. Um, and it goes well with um, uh, Theodore Roosevelt's statement at the beginning of the epilogue, which is um, I can pull it up. I think he says, I think civilization is coming eastward gradually.
2: That's so great. And he
0: said that he said that around the same time as this political cartoon.
2: I love that. Um let's talk more about race since you brought it up. Um both Jeff and I um were really interested to learn about Elizabeth Austin Taylor. Um uh, yeah. neither of us had heard of her before or the her her publication The Utah Plain Dealer. Um can you tell us more about who she was and like what she was trying to accomplish and what happened to her newspaper and her movement?
0: Yeah, so um, I put I put an interchange between Emmeline and um, Elizabeth Taylor really early on in the book, and that one, as I say in the author's note, is entirely fictionalized. They, there's, there's, it's it's very likely that um, Elizabeth would have been involved in this conference, um, and that the paper would have reported on it. Um, but we have we have, we don't have anything from Emily's side that says specifically that she knew her or or talked with her. But I wanted to put it really on early on in the book as a chance to talk about, um, you know, the 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 presence of people of color at this time and specifically, you know, the, the black community in in Utah at that time, which existed first of all. Um and had its own thriving journalistic community. So Elizabeth Taylor and her husband William started one of I think it was seven or maybe four. I am not. I'd have to look that up. Anyway, a handful of newspapers here in Salt Lake for the Black community here, and um, you know, she specifically wasn't a member of the church. There's not a connection. Uh there, but, um, you know, they, they took it very seriously, these newspapers to report on, on the activities of Salt Lake for the black community and, an a rival paper eventually, uh, won out and the plane dealer, uh, closed, but not, not until Elizabeth Taylor had a really wonderful career sort of leading black journalists in the West. Generally, um, I think she, she gets involved in Colorado as well. And so, I I put that in just so that we can remember that, you know, this movement specifically as it gets into the the, the 20th century. And and, and I think the, the, the commemorations of the 19th amendment this year are doing a really good job talking about the, the, the race angle of the suffrage movement, but you know, the, the suffrage movement as, as we know it and as traditionally been portrayed and as we talked about it really, um, has, has predominantly been told as the, a narrative of, of white middle class women and and so to 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 remember uh, the the incredible impact that women of color had on this movement from everything from Ida B Wells to Sojourner truth um, is, is, is vital to really tell the full story. These women were not, you know, as I, I think is the way I put it in the in the book, the idea of imagining themselves as part of civic life was so much more of a stretch for them, right? They had to work so much harder and reach so much farther um, to be able to achieve that vision than the white women did. For the white women, it was considered radical, but you know, just requiring a little stretch of imagination. Yeah,
1: and, you, you describe it as on the margins of socially acceptable behavior for yeah, white women. But for white yeah, women, was, and
0: for for black women, it was unthinkable, right? Um, and so to, to, to think about, you know, people like Elizabeth Taylor kind of working on the margins of, of this movement here in Salt Lake, not to mention, you know, in the South or in the rest of the country, I think is, is really important to keep in mind. And of course we have examples of, you know, LDS women working on the margins at this time too, most famously Jane Manning James, of course, but you know, her descendants are, are, we actually at Better Days 2020, we have made a point of really focusing on all communities in Utah, um, and and the women's advocates from a variety of communities. And one of the women that we've had the opportunity to learn about and to feature in some of our public art and in our profiles and biographies is Lucille Bankhead. And she was a descendant of Jane Manning James and Green Flake. And um, she, for instance, in 1939, so after this period, but you know, not too much after this period, she she um, she was able to testify to the Utah state legislature about how um, damning it would be to create a blacks only neighborhood in Salt Lake and to segregate the neighborhoods. And, and then she became the first relief society president of the Genesis group in 1970. Hmm. So you have this really vital and vibrant um, uh, African-American community here in, in Utah that is not you know, not right at the center because they 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 can't be. They're just not in that that position to imagine that for themselves yet. But they are there. They're reporting on it. They're watching it closely, and they're moving in um in their own ways to work for their own rights. Well, and and that's probably a good. Sorry, go ahead. No, it's probably a good time just to say that um, this week is the 55th anniversary of the Voting Rights Act. And so while we're celebrating the 150th anniversary of things and the 100th anniversary of things, it's also important to recognize that, you know, within many of our own lifetimes, additional legislation was needed to make sure that people of color and marginalized groups could act on this right that was um, more more protected for white women decades earlier.
2: Well, and that's right along the lines of what I was also about to say is that, I mean, again, going back to this idea of the past as a foreign country that this is another instance of how it's not necessarily because like you said we it, only 55 years ago did our national congress enact legislation that attempted to enfranchise black voters and remove you know things that were explicitly written into law to prevent black people male or female from voting uh but we come to today and there are still attempts and at not as explicit anymore but still there are there's legislation there are um uh Rules and regulations that states, some states and and municipalities try to employ that, while maybe not explicitly uh, prohibit black people and people of color from voting, implicitly they're designed to continue to disenfranchise voters. So it's not. This isn't a, the fight that you know Elizabeth Austin Taylor isn't looking down on us saying, "Yay, we won." <laughs> She's looking down on us wow. saying, "It's <laughs> not over yet. Why haven't we fixed this yet?" So it's. I, I agree. Yeah, it's and important I important think- to include th- that this aspect of the story.
0: Well, and and I think maybe a sort of framing of the question that modern listeners might relate to a little bit more is this question of not who gets to vote, but who is a citizen. And that was really at the heart of the debates around um, the 14th and 15th amendments. And then again, the 19th amendment, because, you know, if you define women as citizens, then they should have been able to vote with the 14th and 15th amendments. Right. But, but, they they needed a separate amendment to to sort of qualify them as as um, not only citizens, but people, but citizens who who could vote. And so, you know, if we think of this idea of like, well, who is a citizen, then you get into these, this 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 legislation from 1924, the Indian Citizenship Act, which uh, essentially, you know, allowed. Um, uh, Native Americans to be considered citizens, uh, and, and thus vote, but you had to have additional legislation. And unfortunately it was as late as 1956 or 57 in Utah that, uh, allowed citizenship and enfranchisement for, uh, American Indians on reservations. That was a whole separate legislative argument, right? And then you have, um, the nationality and immigration nationality act, um, which, uh, allowed Asian Americans to become citizens. So so maybe you know in the 20th century we have it's not always couched as who can vote. It's this it's couched as well, who is a citizen. And of course today we have lots of conversations about who gets to live here, who gets to be a citizen, who gets to participate fully in American civic rights.
1: Who is an American? Yeah. Who is an American? We're about out of time, but I, I can't let us end the conversation without a very abrupt pivot. We'll just call it an aside. You, please tell us just a little bit about Idaho, because the situation was way <laughs> different in Idaho, and the anti-Mormon test oath was the most bemusing thing I've read about in some. Did you time. know about I, that? I, had no. you ever heard about I, that? I, no, no, I hadn't. And so I really think our listeners would be Idaho, Idaho, just staying, staying on brand, Idaho. Good
2: job. <laughs> and so not just mean, the <laughs> test oath, but even their constitution. I had no idea that until yes. what was it like the 1950s or 18, nineteen eighties? Yeah, they they finally changed the constitution of Idaho yeah. to not be anti Mormon. Like, tell us about this. Yes.
0: so what? did, Yes, please, please. Yeah, and you know, I would love to speak to an Idahoan about this. So, if any Idahoans are listening and want to chime in, um, I this was absolutely fascinating to me. So, um, at the, so Idaho, um, was also uh, angling to become a state, but uh, at at this time, about seventeen percent of Idaho were members of the church, mostly, of course, in Southern Idaho. And as long as there were members of the church uh, practicing plural marriage in Idaho, no matter how small a percentage uh, of its total population, um, Idaho just felt like you know it was going to be rejected by the federal government in its appeals for statehood. And so they came up with this pact with the devil sort of thing where... They actually created essentially, you know, the 19th century version of the loyalty oath, which was that, um, that that no members of the church could vote, and that was the way that they kind of showed their allegiance to the federal government and placated the federal government is by disenfranch- locally disenfranchising any um, Mormon men, and so to run for office or to vote, you had to promise that you were not a Latter Day Saint. And um as as, as they, we mentioned did
1: they, sorry, did they vet that in any way, or was it just you gave them your word and that was it? I as believe you, promising had, you weren't LDI. I believe
0: you had to give them your word. Yeah. Sorry. Um so uh yeah, I mean I I honestly we I had a, a graduate student researcher who really tried to dig into the that and there's not we couldn't find very much. So again, I would love to speak um to an Idaho and about that if there's a you know an expert in the history of Idaho that would be that would be really great to get more detail about that it's um it's definitely something that we found covered much more extensively in historical documents than in any sort of modern exploration so i don't think it's something that idaho wants to delve into very much and it's modern telling of its history, but, um, we did find that, yeah, I think it was finally repealed from the Idaho state constitution in 1986. Obviously in practice, it was put out of practice much earlier than that.
1: I mean, but that happened. I think California's constitution still says it's like illegal for women to go into saloons on yes. Sunday. Well,
2: People- and also yeah. the, uh, the extermination order wasn't officially repealed until the eighties as well, I believe, but you know, well, there you-, you could you <laughs> couldn't, you couldn't get away with shooting a Mormon in Missouri up until then. So, you know, yeah yeah
1: yeah I also appreciate a certain irony in what are now conservative Western states um, just pining for the federal government, you know for the Fed's approval, which you just want to think about happening today when everything that comes out of the news is how the federal government I, I'm you thinking know, too much. I am in Bundy's in my head all the time.
0: Yeah, well, it's so fascinating because this story, I mean aside from all of the gender implications, this story really helped me as a Utah transplant to understand the angst around local governance. And, um, like state's rights, right. Because like growing up in New York and California and you're like, why, what, why is that even a thing? Like, I don't get that. And moving to Utah over the past 10 years, like it's a huge deal here. Like, do we have the right to govern ourselves? We have the right to govern our own lands, you know, all this stuff. And I, I really kind of, I, I see the seeds of that, where that, where that came from, because there was just this like really sort of vital energy around protecting ourselves and our way of life that was manifest itself in every way of life here from our military to the way we designed our streets to the suffrage movement.
1: Well, I think we'll leave it there unless Jared has
2: anything. No, I've, I've really enjoyed, no, I've, I've loved this whole conversation and I think we've, we've covered everything, all the big stuff anyway. I mean, we could, we could keep that. We we should, we should have a separate podcast and just talk about B. H. Roberts, but um, I think yeah. <laughs> I think we've covered. Uh... Yeah, if there's a villain of the
1: book, it's B. H.
2: Roberts.
0: It is. That's I know. Particular. I know. Interesting. Interesting. He, he, did, he did some tricky things, and um, and you know, I just think one of my favorite parts of um, the B. H. Roberts history. Maybe i will just close with throwing B. H. Roberts under the bus. That's is how it that, should be. Um, Seven million Americans signed a petition. To prevent him from taking his seat in Congress, wow, and if you don't know that that story, that's I think worth if you're not w- interested in women's stuff, just read the book for that because <laughs> i just I just couldn't believe that 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 you know the the size of these scandals, the size of Martha Hughes cannon getting pregnant in a polygamous union while she was a state legislator like. We can't imagine the size of these scandals, how they would make the front page of the national newspapers and how the Mormons were just, you know, this, 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 this tremendous other out there in the West. And I, I just, I don't know, it gives me a good chuckle today to think about, um, some of the ways we made the news back in the 19th century.
1: The book, everybody, Pioneering the Vote, The Untold Story of Suffragists in Utah and the West, put out by Shadow Mountain, no less. So Nylon is playing for the team, which is good to see. <laughs> this and, time around. Uh, so uh, this will be available. Is it, When does it actually come out? I know it's this month. Today. But do we have it's for, August, August today?
0: 4th. Yes. It's been oh. available um, via online purchase for several weeks, uh, but it's officially in bookstores today.
1: Well, please uh, pick up a copy, everybody. Well worth your time. It's a great read. It reads um, much like a novel. It's a great narrative of uh, the fight for suffrage in the West. Nylon, thank you very much for taking the time to talk with us.
0: Thanks for having me.
1: And Jared as well. Thank you for being here. Yeah, Jeff. I'm happy to be here anytime. Jared's not actually here. We ended the call before I let him say goodbye. So I'm speaking on his behalf, assuming he loved what he did. But I love Jared very much. And I love all of you. Thank you very much for taking the time to tune in to This Week in Mormons this week. Please subscribe to the show if you have not done so already. Now's a great time to hit that subscribe button and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. It helps us a lot in visibility and the listings, all those sorts of things. And uh, I would also love it if you join us on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter, where we can have all kinds of fun together. And of course, Patreon, PATREON.com slash This Week in Mormons. I would love for you to pledge $2 a month to help support the show uh, because I have kids who need food, stuff like that. Anyway, everyone, much love to all of you. Have a terrific week. Until we meet again, be well, be holy, and be happy.